0: Um, when, When the tide is in, the view from the seashore in Margate on the Kent coast is kind of like most others, a dark blue plateau rolling to the horizon. The simple lines of blue are broken by the distant uprights of wind turbines, promising a future where February does not hold the temperature of June. But the shore is different when the tide rolls out, slowly a revelation as someone emerges from the deep. You can see him there, you can see him on the top of your service sheet. A life-sized cast iron model of one of us humanoids streaked in milky green after spending half the day meditating underwater. I call him Tone because he was made by the sculptor Anthony Gormley, probably in his studio just a few hundred yards from this church. Tone stands on Folsom Rock on the Margate foreshore in front of the Turner Gallery, built on the site of the guest house where the painter J.M.W. Turner used to stay in the 19th century when he visited Margate to paint the sea and the sky. As the tide recedes, more of Tone is revealed, and eventually you can walk out to be with him. He has a remarkable presence for such a quiet soul. I try maybe like most of you to say my prayers most days but I am so poor at concentrating so I'm always looking for new ways to stay awake in prayer, to remember who I'm with. How can I wake God if I'm not awake myself? We visit Margate to see our daughter Grace and my daily routine is to walk out to Tone and stand with him. At first, a little self-conscious, I stand nearby and try talking It's a little awkward. Then I stop talking at Tone and I start talking with him. We talk about things I'm concerned for. My friends, or Brexit, or climate breakdown, whatever. I have to shut up if anyone else comes out for a look at Tone or they think I need help. (laughs) Tone isn't big on eye contact and I wonder what he is looking at. And then I kind of understand that he might be looking at everything. So some days... I stop talking, and I just stand with him, side by side, quietly staring out to the horizon. I try to see with his eyes. There's the two of us together, you (laughs) see? Eventually, some days, when I am really quiet, I find Tone talking to me. Tone is part of an installation called Another Time a series of 100 cast-iron figures that explore the experience of inhabiting a human body. Unlike the 100 figures fixed permanently on Crosby Beach in Liverpool, called Another Place, these figures are temporary. They will leave at some point, like the rest of us. Cast from his own body, Gormley calls them an attempt to bear witness to what it is like to be alive and alone in space and time. Have you ever asked yourself that question, what it is like to be alive in space and time? The poet Emily Dickinson did, and her answer was this. To live is so startling it leaves little time for anything else. We are startled sometimes when life reveals herself to us. She may disfigure us or reconfigure us. She may transfigure us. This Sunday stands in between Epiphany and Lent. It's a crossing place in the lectionary, the map that the church invented to help navigate our days. On this map, we arrive at a hillside location for a weird hybrid sci-fi mystic drama known as the Transfiguration, in which Jesus and his friends in one century bump into Moses and Elijah from another. Jesus was always about prayer, And on this day, he has invited Peter and John and Luth and Avis and Brian up a hill to find a quiet place. He understood that if you got into the zone with prayer, you began to see things like Emily Dickinson. You began to see how startling life is, which is why on this particular day, it all gets a little stranger things. His friends notice a change in Jesus, as if he is lit up, his clothes conducting an electric current, a kind of whole-body halo. And there are complete strangers next to him, except everyone knows exactly who these complete strangers are. That must be Eve, the first woman. And that's Moses, the one who led the people to freedom. And isn't that Julian of Norwich, the mystic? She hasn't even been born yet. Come to think of it, Eve was probably only ever a poem anyway, and Moses left the scene 1,500 years earlier, To Brian and Luth and Avis, it seemed a little bit Doctor Who or Terry Pratchett. And, like Rosa Parks, did I mention she was there too? None of them have even been thought of yet. By the way, I was the only one to see some of these people, even though the Bible writer just mentions Moses and Elijah. But there they all were, lit up with the glory of life, shining like the sun, when a weird thought came to Peter. Why don't we stay here, all of us, set up camp? Have our own tents, each of us. Never have to go to work again. Brian and Luth and Avis looked at each other and then at Peter, who was sounding a bit trippy. And as the weather turned, it gets cloudy quickly up in the hills, they heard a voice, someone they couldn't see. Keep an eye on him, won't you? Jesus, I mean. Stick with him. He's going to need your help. Listen to him. That was about it. End credits roll just peter and john and jesus now just luth and brian navis and some more from people from st luke's that i forget now but the strangers were gone another appointment no doubt another century everyone looking at jesus did that just happen no one wanted to ask out loud everyone kept silence two dead people moses and elijah appearing to a living guy who everybody reading the story knows was going to be a dead guy quite soon and all of them being transfigured, a metamorphosis from what they were into, from, what we couldn't, from who they were into someone we, we didn't know they were. Reading the story again, I was reminded of Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials, which is set in a multiverse, where characters from one universe can slip into a parallel one, where you can cut an entrance from one world into another with the help of a subtle knife. In this story, it's Moses who has the subtle knife, walking with Elijah through a door he has cut in the time-space continuum and finding himself several hundred years after he's already died. Or maybe the story is like something from Gabriel Garcia Marquez or Isabel Allende, says the Brazilian theologian Claudio Cavales, like the magical realism of Latin American literature, where reality operates on multiple levels. The binary realms of the real stroke unreal, the real stroke unreal, they do make sense, he says, Since the real happens in the fictional, but the fictional is real. These stories, with people of all kinds, ghosts, and other presences, are ways that figure, disfigure, unfigure, and transfigure our reality. The short version of this is that the truth is stranger than we allow it to be. Peter and James and John and Jesus were discovering that inside this world is another world, or that this world is inside another world. And we catch a glimpse of this in moments of transfiguration. We head to a quiet place to pray and we find that prayer is a doorway into this other universe. This is what poets might call attention, a noticing, another reality right next to the one that we are in. The writer of an early Christian letter, we call it the book of Hebrews, puts it like this, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. They are here with us, for us. Jean will tell you that while she came to this church originally for the funeral of her daughter Victoria, she started coming back and back and back because somehow she found it brought her close again to her daughter and still does. Life is heavy with itself. Everyone is illuminated. Have you got eyes to see, is the, way, is the question Jesus asked. Have you got ears to hear? C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, wrote about this in another book called The Weight of Glory. There are no ordinary people, he writes. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the bread and wine of the Eucharist, your neighbour is the holiest object presented to your senses? Hold on, I'm trying. The person sitting next to you, on your right, on your left, they are more than they seem. Greater and deeper and heavier and lighter. They are stranger than you can imagine. They are holy. What is that? Sacred, set apart. Oh. And you yourself also, even when you're down on yourself, you also, you are sacred, holy. We are able to discern this eternal quality in each other if we give ourselves time to notice, to pray. Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk that we heard from just now, had a famous experience of seeing life transfigured on the high street in Louisville in 1958 when he was on an errand from the monastery where he lived. All of a sudden, he noticed that the world inside our world, the one we usually miss, was there, and he found he was overwhelmed with the realisation that I loved all those people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. He saw everyone was plain was beautiful, everyone mortal was immortal, everyone alone was in an illuminated company, transfigured before him. There is no way of telling people, he said, that they are all walking around shining like the sun, like you now. Merton lived in a hermitage, but his piety was political. His prayer drove him into working for justice in 1960s America. Perhaps this is why Rowan Williams, who is a fan of Merton, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, says, Contemplation is a deeply revolutionary matter. Prayer and contemplation allows us to tune into another frequency, to see things differently. This is the same frequency on which art lies. The novelist Jeanette Winterson travelled the country to write about Anthony Gormley's sculptures in five different locations, hillsides, seasides, sides, countrysides. She compares sculptures like Tone in Margate to medieval Pietas, but instead of Mary holding the dead Jesus, Now this is every man holding all of us. There's strength here, she writes, there's waiting. A pieta is a place to leave your burdens. Art objects, she says, are there to carry what we can't bear. One of the jobs of religion was to manage pain. Religion can't do that for most people now. I don't think, she says, art is a substitute for religion. I think religion and art lie on the same frequency, which is why they have been such a powerful partnership across time. What is that frequency, she asks. It is an attunement to the fact that life has an inside as well as an outside. Prayer, like art, reminds us we have an inside life as well as an outside one. And it is on this frequency that we find the beauty and glory in which everyone and everything is made. If we pray, we attend to the quiet divine presence in everyone all around us. Those we see and those we don't, our lives then will sometimes burst into flame, our ordinary moments transfigured. We will see how this outside life of ours also has this inside, how this person next to me is made of the stuff of God. That life itself is a magic realism, and the magic shows us how to transfigure the real. We might be thrown into silence for a period, as Jesus and his friends were on leaving the glory hole that was the top of that mountain. But then the silence will ask us to transfigure this world that we share. Perhaps we will recognize the way our world is being disfigured by the climate, and we will begin the work of reconfiguring it or notice our streets disfigured by living statues under blankets in doorways and begin to figure out what we will do. Perhaps we will recognize the disfigurement of racism or we will admit where our own lives have become disfigured and want to reconfigure them through prayer and contemplation. To live is so startling it leaves little time for anything else. Go transfigure. Thank you.